you will find is a uh, printout of Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Okay, that's the first verse that we're, set of verses that we're going to look at this morning in our series called Grounded. So I want to encourage you, take time uh, to memorize these passages of Scripture. Stick them on your kitchen table. Learn them with your family so that the Word of God is ready in your heart so that you can share it with those that you come into contact with. This passage of Scripture has become incredibly precious to me uh, over the last few years. It's something that I've now used regularly in sharing uh, the gospel of Christ with people that I come into contact with. So I hope this discussion this morning will work in two ways. Okay, one is to, to deliver you if you're stuck in the trap of performance. Okay, if you, if you look at, at, at what it means to be a Christian, like the average person does in the world that we live in, you probably see it in this way. You, in your mind, you have a scale. Okay, you have a scale, and on that scale, there's a good side and there's a bad side. And one day when you die, you hope that when you stand before God, that the good things that you have done tip the scale in your favor and you gain entrance. Okay, so, so most people, they honestly think, and this, is, this isn't a falsely held belief, this is a sincerely held belief, that if my good behavior is substantial enough, there's no way that God wouldn't let me in. People honestly believe that. Okay, and here's what I want to say to you this morning. What that means is this. It means you have to run on the treadmill of life. And you have to crank out righteousness. And what I want you to realize is this. That treadmill will kill your spiritual life. It will steal all the joy from your life. And you'll be thinking, because I'm on the treadmill, I am spiritually more healthy. No, the truth is, that treadmill can never produce what you think it will produce in your life. Okay, and as one man said to me a few years ago, he said, I unplugged the treadmill. Okay, and I said, praise God. We all need to unplug the treadmill. If you think that if I can crank out enough good and in the end I stand before God and the good works just tip the scales slightly in my favor, God would never send me out of his presence forever. If you believe that, I'm going to be very direct with you this morning and say, you're wrong. Not my opinion, but that's what God's word says. The other thing this passage of scripture will serve to do is this. It will kill the natural tendency that most of us have, even as true believers in the gospel of grace. We have a natural inclination or tendency towards legalism. Okay, to think that my ability to go before God and seek his help and favor is based upon how well I live the day before or the day before the night that I'm praying. And that if I have not been so good, then God is not going to listen to me. But if I had lived a good life and not blown up at my wife, then God would be really quick to hear me. Isn't that how most of us think? You know what that is? You know what that says? That says, if I am good, God loves me. And if I am bad, God cannot love me. Okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. You will not find that in Scripture. Okay, but it is the natural default mode of the religious mind which most of us have. Why? Because you and I live in a world where most of your relationships are not based on grace. They're based on merit. Your treatment of others is usually dependent upon how nice they have been to you. Isn't that true? It's true in our marriages. It's true in our relationship with our children. It is so true in the workplace, in the education. It, it, it's there all the time. We all tend towards 
loving people that are behaving properly towards us, and we think the same thing about God, that when I'm behaving properly towards God, God is more inclined to give me favor. Okay, if you believe that, you do not understand that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. The love of God was shed and moved in your direction prior to any good on your part. That's the gospel of grace. So, two aims. To deliver from the trap of performance, the sense of guilt and inferiority that rests on the shoulders of many people. And secondly, to assist you in carrying the gospel so that you can live it and share it confidently. Because here's what I believe about sharing the gospel. Many Christians don't share the gospel, number one, because they're worried about what people will think about them. Secondly, we don't have a clear enough grasp on the gospel that we can take it and communicate it to people that need to hear it. So my goal is that you would, in hearing it, again, and I, I've preached on this text before, okay, I understand that, I'm claiming verse 1 as the justification for doing this. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. It is guardrails on the road of your spiritual life to keep you moving towards and focused on the cross of Christ. So my aim is that you would become clear and understanding the gospel so that when you get into a conversation with someone who believes that it's all about the scale, which is the typical religious mindset, you, you, can, you can effectively dismantle the scale and point into the fact that beyond, if you take off you know, the, the, the instruments on the scale that weigh things, you end up with the shape of a cross. Okay, you don't need to add things on one side or the other. Rip those things off, and what you are left with is a cross. Okay, and that is the message of the gospel. It's not about my good and my bad. It's not about how good I've been. It doesn't matter how bad I've been. The gospel is a message of favor and love and grace in which God moves towards wretched sinners with his amazing love. The story of this text is set in the context of a discussion in the church of Philippi about religious people and people who believe in grace. Paul is the man writing to them who believes in grace. He's writing to people that are tempted to believe that in order to become a full Christian, you have to add a few external ornaments to your life. In this case, the external ornament in the ancient world was circumcision. If you had that, you were a true Jew, a true religious person. You had an inside track that Gentiles didn't have. And the theology went something like this. If a Gentile who has come to Jesus out of an uncircumcised place comes into the realm of the body of Christ in order to be a completed Christian, they need to receive this external sign that makes them a true Christian. Okay? Paul's response to that is that is utter rubbish. And that kind of thinking, that certain behaviors make me more of a Christian, Paul says, I count that as rubbish so that I may instead have Jesus Christ alone. So, let's move into this text, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, For it is we who are the circumcision, the true people of God. We who, Paul? We who worship God by the Spirit and glory in Christ. And the idea of the word glory here is to make boast in, to make Jesus large. True people of God glory in. They exalt Jesus Christ. They don't talk about the scale. They never think of their works, their good deeds, as things that impress God and cause Him to love them. They never think that way. How does Paul say it? We are the true circumcision, the true people of God who worship God by the Spirit, prompted from within, and glory in Christ, and what's the last thing he says? And put no 
confidence in the flesh. And what Paul means by flesh here is this. The body within which we live, acting out, fulfilling rituals, fulfilling religious obligations, rule-keeping. Okay, that's what he means. What's Paul's attitude now? He says, I put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, and he says, that is what it is to be related to God through grace alone, through Christ alone. There is this lack of confidence in the flesh. Now, what, is, what can Paul say? He's, he can say in verse 4, even though I myself might have reasons for that kind of confidence. Well, that's a fascinating twist, isn't it? I count religious performance as rubbish as a means of gaining a relationship with Christ. But if anyone wants to talk about gaining a relationship with Christ through religious performance, Paul's saying, I'll go toe-to-toe with the best. Which sounds like what? Sounds like boasting. Right? So what is Paul doing? What Paul's going to say is this. If you want to compare religious performance as a means of gaining access with God, a relationship to God, if that's what you want to do, what is Paul saying? He's saying, I'll go toe-to-toe with the best. If you get to heaven by religious performance, Paul says, I would be first in line. Okay, but the question is, what's he doing? He's giving a hypothetical argument. He's saying, if we get to heaven by works, then I would be first in line. But in fact, we don't. Therefore, verse 4, I place no confidence in the flesh, even though I could. Okay, does that make sense? So it kind of sets up an argument. So let's then move in to verse 5, where Paul kind of unpacks what he means when he says... I could place confidence in the flesh, i.e., I could play that game better than anyone. Verses 5 and 6 do this. They list, list for us Paul's advantages as a Jewish man in regards to this discussion about righteousness through law-keeping. Okay, so if you get to heaven by how good you are, Paul says, here's the things that I would count on. His former advantages. And some people have called these Paul's religious credentials. Okay, have you ever talked to people who want to tell you all the things that they've done so that you can be sure that when they die, they're going to heaven? What are they listing? They're listing what they've accomplished, what they've cranked out on the treadmill of religion. They're their credentials. It's exactly what Paul's going to do here. He's going to lay it out in detail. He talks about it from two angles. He talks about what he inherited and what he achieved. Okay? So look at verse 5 with me real quick. Paul says this. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised the eighth day. If you go back and study the life of Christ, you'll find that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, Paul can say, I did that. He says, I am of the people of Israel, born that way. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, what was a Pharisee? A Pharisee was someone who taught how to keep the law and, in fact, exemplified how to keep the law. Paul's saying, I I did that. As for zeal, could anyone question Paul's zeal for the Jewish religion? What does he say? He says, you can't question it. Why? I persecuted the church of Christ, which came up against the secularized Judaism of Paul's day. Not the biblical Judaism, which pointed forward to Christ, but he said, I rose up against this biblical form of Judaism that said you can have a relationship with God without works. Without religious performance, Paul said, I fought against that. Acts chapter 6 and 7, we looked at last Sunday. Paul stood by, as Stephen, the first martyr in the early church, spent his life for Christ. Right? So Paul can say, as to zeal, I killed people. 
because of what I believed about Jesus Christ. As to, and this is, I think, the key statement, because this then becomes a summary, the last part of verse 6. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Okay, that's an amazing statement. As for legalistic righteousness. And I want you to notice, he doesn't say as for righteousness, faultless. But as for law-keeping righteousness, faultless. And you have to say, okay, all right, I understand what he inherited by birth. His Jewishness, his religious credentials by birth, his ethnic privileges by birth. But then he starts talking about what he achieved. Okay, so what's inherited, but then what he does through his performance. What is it that Paul means when he says, as to legalistic righteousness, without blame? Okay, here's what he means. He kept the domesticated form of the law. Okay, the law establishes a standard in the Ten Commandments that none of us keep. Would you all agree with me on that? Okay, the first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means all the time. Can anyone here say that you've done that? Okay, I ask that question to people. I say, oh, don't pastor him. I think you get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. I say, let's start with the first one. How you feel? All the time. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show me that I'm guilty. Is Paul saying he kept the Ten Commandments? No. He says, as to legalistic righteousness. Legalistic righteousness is what? It is the rituals prescribed by the law that made keeping the Ten Commandments seem doable. Dumb it down, make it more tangible, less heartfelt, more external. And what did Paul say? As for that kind of righteousness, I'll stand with the best of them. Okay, I went to the temple. I was circumcised the eighth day. Okay, I've observed all the holidays, all the past, everything. I've done it all. So he could say literally, as to that stuff, you can't find any harm in me, any wrong in me. Now, would you say that if that wasn't true? Okay, would Paul make that boast? If it wasn't true, I think the answer is quite obvious. No, you wouldn't make that claim if, you couldn't, if it was going to destroy your argument because everybody knows the truth about you. Well, what is Paul saying? He's saying in that realm, in that regard. He said, I can stand with the best of them. One translator put it this way. It says, Paul had made the right choices. Okay, does that make sense? In regards to religious rule, Paul, oh, he, he always, from a young man to an older man, what did he do? He always made the right choices. He always seemed to be spot on. And everybody would, you know, give Paul lots of attaboys, pats on the back. Good job, Paul. And he rose up in the Sanhedrin and became one of the most powerful leaders of the Sanhedrin. And here's what you would think. Oh, man, I want to be like Paul. If you grew up in Jerusalem and saw the Sanhedrin, the gathering of the 70 that condemned Stephen to death, you would say, I want to be like Paul. He's the exemplar of what it means to be a Jewish leader. He's got his act together. The question that rises in my mind is this. Was Paul sincere? In his pre-Christ days, was he a sincerely religious man? I think the answer is indisputably yes. I think his killing of Stephen was out of what he genuinely thought to be the right thing to do. How horrific is that? Think about it. Folks, this is what self-righteousness will always do to you. It'll make you proud and arrogant so that in acts of sincerity, you can actually act in ways that are completely unlike the law of God. That's where Paul was. That's what self-righteousness always does. It makes us arrogant. It makes us self-righteous. It makes us intolerant. It makes us judgmental. If that characterizes your life, 
you have to ask yourself, do I really understand the gospel? That's Paul in terms of his advantages. A quintessentially religious man. But he calls himself, in verse 6, a legalist. So which raises a question, what is legalism? What does Paul mean when he says, as for legalistic righteousness, without blame, without charge, nothing sticks. Verse 3 and verse 4, he describes it for us in a word. We are those who put no confidence in the flesh, even though I am one who could have, or middle of verse 4, have such confidence in the flesh. Okay, so what what is this legalism that Paul says, I am clinging, I used to cling to that, I used to hold to that, that was my hope. What is he talking about? No confidence in the flesh. Legalism is the opposite of that, it is confidence in the flesh. It is the thought that when I stand before God, my religious activity will far outweigh my bad actions and God would never think of not letting me in. Okay? What is legalism? Sinclair Ferguson gives this, this definition. He says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Okay, I made a point of memorizing that sentence because I share it with people. Okay, legalism is seeking to achieve. Notice what it is. It's about what I do. That's what a a legalistic mind is always thinking that. Okay, what do I have to do to get God's favor, to earn God's love? So I'm going to go to church every day of the week. I'm going to participate in sacraments all the time. And if I miss them, I'm going to be in trouble. And I I got to make sure I do all those things. And it pushes you into a frenzy. Ultimately, it's about me. It's about my good works. And when I get to heaven, God's going to let me in because of me. As opposed to the biblical message, which is God's going to let you into heaven because of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's important that we realize that all of us have a tendency, as one writer said, to take our performance. Okay, and every, if you know Christ, and you, if you're honest, you're going to say, I have this tendency. What is our tendency? Our tendency is to perform well. Okay, and to kind of pack that up and to smuggle it into the work of grace. And what are we doing? We're thinking at some level that God's attitude towards me, God's love towards me is more intense because I have been a good boy or a good girl today. Okay? Your children do this without you teaching them to do this. Don't they? Daddy, look what I did. Mommy, look what I did. And what are they looking for? They're looking for attaboys. Okay? Looking for pats on the back. It's a natural tendency. In, in the context of religious life, people do it all the time. It is the essence of religion. That my performance in some way makes God more inclined to answer my prayer or to show me favor or to show me love and grace. If you believe that your standing with God now or in the future is based upon how you are living today, you are a legalist. But you're in good company, right? Because Paul said, as to legalistic righteousness, I'm the man. Okay? So first we look at Paul's former advantages. I read an interesting article a few weeks ago. Remember when we were talking about the issue of giving generosity selflessness? I read an article during that time that went after this issue of legalism. Okay? It's from the medieval times when largely in the Catholic Church there was a shift towards almsgiving as a means of shortening your time in purgatory. 
Okay, and you remember that the Catholic Church developed this theology called purgatory late, much later than the New Testament time. Okay, and so what happened? Create this theory, okay, this theology about purgatory. Say to people, if you give alms, you will purchase for yourself freedom from purgatory. Okay, it ultimately came to something called, if you remember these words, indulgences. How many of you have heard that word? Okay, in the Reformation, what happened? There were people selling pieces of hair. The Catholic Church saying, this is from Mary. Or this splinter of wood is from the cross of Christ. And if you purchase it, what do you get? For a large sum of money to build the cathedral that was going bankrupt, you got freedom from purgatory. Okay, now listen. All of us think of that. What do you, in your mind, what do you think? Oh, that's ridiculous. How could anybody think like that? Look in the mirror. We all think like that. You probably relate to your mate like that. That's why you give love when love is deserved. Because they have to pay for their time to get out of your marital purgatory. Is that not true? What are we all? We're all legalists. We look at the religious person. God help them. Yes, I agree with that. But may God help the church to be delivered from thinking that my standing with my brother or sister is based upon me or their performance earns my love and favor. That's not Christian living. It's like everybody else lives. Okay, so God needs to deliver us from that. In the ancient world, one writer, was his name is Allhorn, was writing an article that I, I, I couldn't find this morning, but I had a quote from it in my notes from a few months ago. He said this, in light of this discussion about indulgences and... and uh, you know, purchases of time out of purgatory, he made this observation. And, and it was just a sad time because pe- poor people were being taken advantage of through fear and through a Christless religion that had crosses all over and icons of Christ all over. But it was utterly Christless because it became a place where if you gave alms to support ultimately the state because the state was a Christian state, which is horrific. Okay, you were supporting the state. It was a means of taxation. That's why many wanted to take over the Catholic Church at times. Because they wanted the revenue stream from the Catholic Church historically. Ohorn said this. He said, nothing more effectively promoted this propensity or tendency than the thought. Okay, this, this idea of almsgiving for release. Nothing promoted this tendency, this natural tendency more. Nothing fanned the flame more than the thought that the sin-atoning power of alms reaches to the other world. Do you get that? Nothing fires legalism more than the thought that sin-atoning payments affect my destiny in the other world. Did you ever think like that? Okay, if you come from a religious background, I guarantee you something. You thought just like that. You thought that in the good things you did, God was writing it all down in heaven saying, good, 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 good. And that one day when you stood before him, just in your favor, I thought the same way. He goes on to say, it may be said that the doctrine of purgatory as a threat determined more than anything else the charity of the entire medieval period. Almost a thousand years. Is that amazing? That is heartbreaking. People out of poverty giving with the thought that this will affect the other world. 
to give anything to the church was esteemed as an especially good work and one sure to secure the favor of God. Now, folks, that is legalism. That is self-righteousness. That is the essence of religion. That's why when people say to me as a pastor, oh, you're a religious man, I say, God forbid. God forbid. I have, if I'm a religious man, I have no hope of heaven. I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God. And Paul was coming to realize something, that he was a sinner in need of God's grace. Ask yourself this question. What is the effect of legalism on your view of the cross? Okay, if you affect eternal destiny, the other world, by how you live out your acts of charity, whether it's service or giving of alms, if you live your life thinking that that is the way to heaven, because that's what the church taught you, how does that affect your view of the cross? You know what it says about the cross? It says that the cross is, number one, inadequate. Okay? Unnecessary, number two. Third, scariest and saddest, insufficient. Okay, it says that when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he didn't really mean it. Well, then what was he doing? Was he joking? Was he kind of just playing with people? Giving false hope. You have to wrestle with this. The thief on the cross came to realize what? Pure grace is the means by which you find entrance into heaven. Could the thief on the cross offer any alms or acts of service? No. What's he dying as? A criminal. A murderer. What does Jesus say to him? He says, Lord, remember me. You've done nothing wrong. He says, Lord, remember me. What does Jesus say to him? Next time around, you'll do better. Is that what he says? No. He says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. I wish I could preach sermons that short. Okay. That's powerful. And you know what it does? It destroys the thought of alms as a means of affecting the other world. And it delivers you from an, a burden that you can't carry. That treadmill will kill you. It goes too fast. The incline is too steep. You can't keep up. You don't have the stamina spiritually. Jesus came and ran that treadmill life for you. That's the gospel of grace. The life you couldn't live, he lived. The death you should die, he died. Paul's credentials made him a legalist, but stole his joy and made him a deadly man. In the Baltimore Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I don't mean this, if you come from a Catholic background or if you attend a Catholic church today, please understand this. Okay, I don't believe that your eternal destiny is affected by going into or not going into a Catholic church. And I hope that you understand that your being in this room today does not necessarily add to the scale of goodness for you. And it does not increase your chances of getting to heaven. I want to be very clear about that. But this is what the Baltimore Catechism says, and this is why somebody says to me, you're a pastor of a non-denominational church. Why didn't you become a priest? Number one, I'm not celibate, okay? <laughs> Number one. <laughs> but more important and second, okay, is that I don't accept the statement that I'm going to read to you. And I believe, quite honestly, 
that the average Catholic that I have interacted with has never heard this statement from the Baltimore Catechism. Here's what it says about legalism. It says, by adherence to the sacraments, we add to the merit of Christ. Okay, the Catholic Church has how many sacraments? Those that are Catholics. Seven. Okay, are they all in the Bible? No, they're not. Okay, but the teaching of the church officially, not, don't ask a Catholic to find out what Catholics believe. Because most Catholics, I found, don't know what Catholicism believes. Okay, which is fascinating. May that not be true of a biblical church. Okay, but that in our adherence to the sacraments, the performance of them, we add to the merit of Christ. Which is to say what? The work of Christ is inadequate and therefore insufficient. What is that? That's legalism. That I smuggle my performance at church on Sunday morning or through the week if I'm really devoted... I smuggle that performance into my clothing. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, God, I trust in Jesus. And I did this. That's what it means. That in my adherence, I add to, I complete, I finish what Jesus said he finished. The effect of legalistic thinking on our lives is not pretty. It leads to judgmentalism. It leads to a critical spirit, and it leads to slavery. A few years ago, I was golfing with uh, Randy Cole. Dave, you probably remember me telling this story somewhere along the way. Golfing with a gentleman that used to come to our church named Randy Cole. Golfing with two guys that were, they were really nice, foul-mouthed guys. Okay, I mean, we had a great time with them. Man, it was brutal. It was brutal. About the 18th hole, they're getting curious, because men always are like, hey, so what do you do for a living? This guy says to Randy Cole, he says, uh, I'm about 100 yards away. He says to Randy Cole, he says, is, is, is he a lawyer? Randy says, uh, no, he's a pastor. And that guy goes, no blanking way. I hear him. I hear him 100 yards away. He says, no blanking way, no blanking way. I am definitely going to hell now. I went over and said to him, I said, I have a question for you. Are you a Catholic? He said, yeah. I said, so how are you getting to heaven? Well, what was he thinking? I cursed in front of a pastor. I'm done. That's what he really thought. I quickly delivered him from that and said, you know what? I am what you are. You just said it out loud. I thought that way. You've seen my golf game. <laughs> like, it's colorful. Many words could describe it. I just yell at myself the whole time. I just, oh, Tim. Okay, just, what was he thinking? He was thinking that he had done enough bad things now that, oh no, the scales tip this way now. And when I stand before God, my bad works are going to condemn me. There's no hope for me. Folks, that's not true. Okay, and when any religious order, it doesn't matter what church, I'm trying to bash the Catholic church today. Most religions teach this. Most world religions teach this. You've offended the God. The God that you offend is le- offended legislates. You violated his legislation. There's a consequence for that. You better get down and give God ten if you want his favor. That's how you get there. The, the biblical truth of Christianity departs from every world religion at that point. It does not say, Carmelo, get down and give me ten. God became a man. And he got down and did ten. On the cross. Okay, and when you, that's what you need to share with people. 
But what I've just told you this morning is not highly intellectual. You don't need a seminary degree to share it. It's the gospel. And Paul realized, yeah, legalistic righteousness, got that. But what did he say? And notice what he says. This is, this is what, when you understand it, you, then you go from Paul's credentials to Paul's realization. Okay, and what this tells you, kind of moves from, Paul used to think like this, then all of a sudden he had an aha moment when it all came clear. Happened on the road to Damascus sometime after hearing the sermon of Stephen, who died to make that message known. That's how important it was to the early church. They laid down their lives so the people would know. Paul's realization, verse 7. Okay, as to legalistic righteousness, faultless. But, okay, now I, in my Bible, I circle these words. Why? They're connectors. They're conjunctions. They tie one thought to the next. This is contrast. Okay, I used to think this way. That was me. But. My wife said that in Sunday school one time. Why? Uh, I'm looking at Jesse's laughing because she remembers the story. My wife said to the girls, now why do you think that butt's in there? The kids just started cracking up because they're like thinking, because they weren't paying attention. They were like, what'd she say? There's a butt in the Bible. Okay, this one's here for a reason. Paul says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Oh, I used to think this made me somebody with God. Now I realize that it makes me nobody, which means what? It means that you can earn the approval of people and have the disapproval of God. That was the aha moment for Paul. Paul walked by, everybody was like, you know, remember Jesus said the Pharisees love to walk by in their robes. They love for people to give them salutatory greetings in the marketplace. Honor. Paul was all about honor. He loved it. And then one day, he, he realized, oh no, that doesn't matter. And it was an aha moment that changed everything in Paul's life. It changed how he saw Jesus, whose crucifixion I am personally certain he saw. He was in the Sanhedrin for the condemnation of Christ. He saw him he heard what they said. They had to the Sanhedrin pay people to lie about the imperfection of Jesus, which didn't exist. He saw the righteousness of Christ. He heard about it. He knew they paid money to get people to lie, to condemn an innocent man that he knew was innocent. Paul now sees his legalistic righteousness, which once made him so confident as a liability. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For the advantage of, is the idea here, Christ. Do you see? So he releases this other stuff, and I'll talk in a second about how he releases it. And he says, that I may have Christ. It's an either-or proposition. Now please understand this, what I'm going to say. In the Catholic Church, it is not an either-or proposition. It is a both-and. Okay? It's Christ plus performance equals heaven. Okay? What does biblical Christianity say? Christ plus what? Nothing. Do you know what that is for a self-condemned sinner? That is the best news that they have ever heard. For the woman at the well, that was the best news she had ever heard. And for the Apostle Paul, what was it? 
I don't have to do this. I can get off this stinking treadmill that's killing me. And the answer to Paul from Christ was, yes. What did Paul say? What do you want me to do? You tell me and I'll do it. I trust you. I believe you. I'll follow you. This moment when he says, I count everything as a loss, that is to say it is a hindrance, it is a detrimental, I am tearing it up and throwing it out with the trash. That's the idea. Now verse 8, after coming to know this Christ, and this is what he's, he's post-Christian now, he's talking about in Christ. What does he say? I now consider everything lost for the sake of Christ. What is more? What is he doing? He's amping it up, a greater contrast. Legalistic righteousness compared to this. He says, what is more? I consider everything a loss. My entire life. All of my credentials. He's shredding all his documentation. All the certificates on the wall of his office. What is he doing? He's shredding them. And what's he going to do with them? I love this. He says, What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Okay, and this is critical that you understand this. I consider them rubbish. The word literally can be translated something like this, roadkill. Okay, when we were in West in, in Virginia about a month and a half ago, I went out jogging in front of this place that we were staying at, and there was a corpse, a deer corpse. I guess that's a car guy, laying beside the road, okay? And it was like puffy and broken, okay? Now, what did I do? Did I stop and gaze with wonder? And take in the sensation. Okay? No, I was, my, my, my senses were being assaulted as I stood there. So I didn't stand there. What did I do? I ran as fast as I could to do what? To create as much distance as I could between myself and a rotting carcass. And Paul says this. When I saw the cross of Christ, I put as much distance as I possibly could between religion and myself. And I fled into the arms of Christ. Paul says, I count it. Phil remembers this word. I preached on this text or did it in men's study. Scubula is the word here. Paul says, I count it as scubula. I count it as a rotting carcass. And the goal of my life is to get as far away from that kind of thinking as I possibly can. Because the way of religion, folks, is death. It does not give eternal life. It does not affect the other life. No matter how sincere one may be. That's what Paul came to realize. And it transformed his life. Paul makes a decision to run from all of these things. And, and here's what I thought to myself. As I read this text this morning again, I thought, Paul bought the pearl. And he didn't have a yard sale like I talked about a few weeks ago. You know what he did? He called in a dumpster. He, everything. Well, this is all rubbish. What I all thought was so dear and what it gave me such confidence, Paul realizes if I stand before God in this righteousness, it won't carry the day. And he flees to Christ. The realization drove him to that decision. He realized that his attempts at perfection fell short. He realized that his credentials were fallacious and flawed. Now, let me say this. Is Paul saying that the law itself is bad? Romans 3.20 says this. Okay? It says, the law is not bad. 
But we must understand that by the works of the law, no flesh is justified. No one finds forgiveness of their sin by getting on the treadmill and cranking out. It is all found through who? Jesus Christ. He came to a realization that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that hope for every person, religious or otherwise, religious or complete pagan, comes to God on the same basis. Why? Because all of that religious achievement was counted as what? A carcass to run away from. So that he may have Christ. Paul does not say, I grabbed the carcass of religion and ran in with it and fled to the cross so that I could have Jesus and the carcass. He doesn't even leave that option on the table, does he? He calls it scubula. It's a rotting corpse. Get as far away from it as you can. Have Christ alone. Paul says, that's what I want. So you move into verse 8 or verse 9. He says, I want to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own. Legalism. Okay, do you see it? A, a, a righteousness that comes as a result of performance. What is he saying? I want the righteousness of Christ to cover me. So that when God looks at me, what does he see? Not Christ plus my attempts to hem in a little bit. No, he says, oh, just Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Which means what? It means that Paul saw the credentials of verses 4 and 5 as righteousness, right? He saw it as something that would recommend it of God. So he can list those things and say, that's what I used to think. That's what it's all about. How often do you go to church? And how much do you give? What does Paul say? Now I count that as scubula. I want to get far away from that. So that I can have Christ. Because in Christ, what do I find? I find the righteousness that I could never provide. And what is Paul saying? I realized that those credentials that would cause every Jewish you know, individual to say, to be panting and saying, oh, I wish I was like Paul. What is Paul? Paul's ripping that away from him saying, do not go to the dumpster and pull stuff out. Okay? He said, don't do that. There is a feast for you. And the price of getting in has already been paid. Don't eat scubula. When you can have a gourmet meal for free. This will cost you everything. Please understand this. I'm not saying that this is cheap grace. This costs Christ everything. Do you understand? This life costs Paul everything. The gospel of grace costs Christ everything. And that is what separates biblical Christianity from all religions. It is that God became a man and stood in your place. The consequences of your sin, they fell on him. Here's what Isaiah said, looking forward, and by his wounds, you are healed. Now, folks, I don't know how you can be quiet about that. Sorry. If you are, I find it inexplicable. Okay? When I share personal things, I'm going to share with you just a stupid little thing that happened this morning. Okay? I'm going to share with you because if you start thinking about the gospel, you're going to start wanting to share it. You're going to realize that people are carrying around dead carcasses and they need to be freed from them. What are you going to do? Okay, how are you going to get involved in people's lives? Okay, so you can't do it at work. Where are you doing it? Where is it happening in your life? Where are you taking this message to broken people who are trapped in religion, who do not have hope? Are you giving them hope? I went by Dunkin' Donuts today, and the kid at the window is sunburned. He looked like a lobster. I said, man, what happened to you? I said, if you think that sun is hot, you don't know anything what hell is like. No, I didn't say it. <laughs> but that was a line I could have used, but I didn't. It just didn't come at the right time. Next time, I'm going to go back there after church and buy another coffee. He said, I said, where were you? He says, I was at races yesterday. 
like at motorsport races. I said, oh. I said, and look, here's my, just don't think like I'm doing this all the time. Just, in my mind, I thought, I'm planning to go to races on July 3rd with Dan Slack and Jonathan and whoever else wants to go. Dan will love a busload. <laughs> so I said to this guy, because I'm thinking, okay, I buy coffee from him. And they always say to me when I try to engage him in a conversation at the drive through window, if you want to have fun, just stand there and talk to him because they're on a timer inside that they've got to get every customer through in two minutes. So the time I sit there and just talk to him. <laughs> like, sir, you have to go. I said, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, I'm talking to this guy, and I said to him, I said, we're going to the races on July 3rd. If you want to go, let me know. I said, I'll come back. I, don't know, I looked at my wallet. I didn't have a card. I said, I'll come back, and I'll give you a card. Why? Why? I don't know if this kid cares about sprint car races. I have no idea. But you know what I know? I know he needs Jesus. That's all. That, that didn't, I didn't think about what is he going to think about me. I invited him to races. Okay, he might think I'm cool now, even though I'm 51, I have a gray goo. He may think, oh, he's, he's like it, you know. Why did I invite him? Do I need more friends in my life? Am I, do I have open time in my calendar? I don't. I have very little margin in my life. But we all ought to have margin in our lives, space, to make a difference for Jesus. If you don't have margin for that, I'm going to tell you something. You're too busy. You're too busy. Okay? Invite people into your sphere of influence. Invite people to come with you, to be with people that know Jesus. Share the, 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 the resources that God has given you. Time, talent, treasure, and relationships. You know another crusade? A couple of us are going to there. Come with us. And what's he going to do? He's going to see Christians living life together. I don't know if we'll talk about the gospel. I don't know if he's even going to go. But guess what? You keep sowing the seed. You keep casting the line. Why? Because people are connected to Scuba, and our job is to share the truth that sets them free from that carcass so they can know the glory of Christ. So what is Paul saying in this text? Is he saying, hey, all boasting is wrong? He's not saying that. He's saying glorying in Christ is awesome. The privilege we have is to go to people and say, there is hope in Jesus who lived the life you couldn't live, provided a righteousness that you couldn't achieve. What does Paul say? I gave up my flawed, ineffective, inconsequential righteousness so that what? I could have his righteousness. What did Paul understand? You can't have both. You can't say, I'm doing pretty well, so I need Jesus to help me to complete the job. Uh, or you can't say, Jesus did his bit, in Ron Lee's terms, and I'm going to do my bit, and therefore when it comes together, it'll tip the scale in favor. No, it's either Christ or it's not Christ. It's not Christ plus. It's not Christ and. It's Christ alone. That's why I wanted to start here today. We're going to talk about a series on grounded. Okay, what's the first stone in the foundation of the Christian life? You know what it is? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. When I started dating my wife, I was, uh, I was smitten. I saw in her characteristics, traits, that compelled me to run to consider all of the girls carcasses. That's what I did. 
everybody else. And on my wedding day, what did I say? All you that are looking at me saying, that's horrible. Forsaking all others. Did you say that? Did he say that to you, Rita? Okay. Consider them carcasses. That's what he said. So that he might have you, right? And if he had said, Rita, you know, on the day of your wedding, you're saying to us, he says, I forsake all others, but I want to leave the option open for others. What would you have said? You have no, you're speechless. <laughs> okay. uh, don't say what's coming to your mind, okay? <laughs> okay, wait. When you come to Christ, what are you saying? I, 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 I severed myself from that stuff. When I met my wife, that's what I did. I stopped all of the relationships. So that on the wedding day, I could say, I have forsaken all others. So that I can have you in a way that I will not have others. Folks, that's the same thing that needs to happen. In regards to the picture of righteousness and illustration. I'm a good ping pong player. Okay, and I'm not mean to brag. Okay, but I'm pretty good. Okay, and then I played Ryan Duvenak. And my ping pong playing became flawed, weak, and it made me angry. Okay, why? I, what I thought was good was good in most circumstances until I got around someone who really was good. And what did I realize? I'm not that good. And folks, here's what you need to do. You need to look at Jesus, compare your life to Jesus. If you're wrestling with this, coming to faith in Christ alone, don't compare yourself to anybody in this room. Don't. Because you might find yourself okay, but you're really not. Compare yourself to Jesus. Pick up the picture of the law of the Ten Commandments that he fulfilled perfectly. Look at it. It's a picture of Christ. Flip everyone in reverse. It is a picture of Jesus. Don't murder. Love. Don't steal. Give generously and sacrificially, right? That's what the Ten Commandments are saying. It's not, oh, I didn't commit adultery. What does Jesus say? But I say to you, have you ever looked at a woman to lust? Guilty. Adulterer. Have you ever kept something dishonestly? Thief. Have you ever failed to tell the truth? Liar. You look at Jesus, what do you find? Thou shalt not lie. Jesus always told the truth. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus always loved. Do you understand? That's how the law works. That's Jesus' understanding of it. Look at the law. Let it destroy your self-righteousness. Let it point you to the adequacy and sufficiency of the righteousness of Christ and then run to Him. Flee from the scuba. Flee from the carcass of religion. Get off the treadmill and run to Christ. Now, I prepared this sermon this morning thinking, okay, this hits a little hard, but I thought this. I thought if you wandered in here today or someone invited you to come here today and you, you thought when I walk in, it's like the walls are going to fall down, the ceiling's coming in because I'm not a church person. Okay, I hope you realize that Paul did not become a church person. Paul became a follower of Christ. Paul saw his sinfulness in all of its glory for what it really was and he said, I consider that rubbish. I repent of that. And I flee to Christ. You know what Paul says? Why did Paul do it? Paul said, I did that. I fled from that so that I could say, all I have and all I need is Christ. Folks, that's the gospel. So if you come in here today and you say, well, what about me? I, I have all these regrets. So do I. So do I. I have these failures. What about the... So do I. So do I. 
And if you're looking for someone maybe that you think is a little worse than me, look at Paul. Who looked really good, but then looked really bad, doesn't he? Killing a preacher of Christ. And God saved him. I suspect that you probably have not done something that horrible. But if you have, there's hope for you in Christ. But what you have to realize is that your attempts at reformation are really attempts at creating righteousness because you know you need it in your heart, in your conscience. You know you need that when you stand before God one day. But the reason you're probably here is because you realize you don't have it. You're trying and you're looking for answers. You're seeking. Jesus is the answer. But you can't have him until you cast aside the carcass of religiosity and self-righteousness. And I'll tell you this. For my father-in-law, this was the hardest decision of his life. He got downright angry. Most of you don't know my father-in-law trusted Christ 20 years ago. He got downright angry with me when we moved here and put out a flyer that says that hope is found in Jesus only and that Jesus died for our sins and that all of us are sinners, that hope for eternal life and, and, and forgiveness of our sin and righteousness before God is found in Jesus alone. He like blew up on me. And I had to say to him, I didn't come up here to tell people what I think. My opinion, quite frankly, does not matter and will not deliver people. But Jesus can. So 23 years later, what are we doing? We're still talking about the same thing. I don't know about you. I don't get tired of it. I don't. And I hope that the greatest joy of my life for the duration is telling people that their righteousness is flawed. And so is mine. But that there is a righteousness that exceeds all others. A perfect righteousness found in Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, here's what I would beg of you this morning. Bow your head where you're sitting. Cry out to him and say, Jesus, today I understand. I have the aha moment. I see it. My righteousness is flawed. I need to cast it aside. I need to come into a realm of non-religious activity and fall on my face and claim Christ alone, acknowledging my sin and being clothed with his righteousness. The one who lived the life I couldn't live and died the death I should have died and rose to give me eternal life. All you need is Christ. Paul would say, all I have is Christ. And I am not sorry. God, I pray that you would allow your word this morning to sink.